It is great to be here with you. Um, it's, it's really not a chore for me to drive from El Paso. My work day starts at 3 in the afternoon. That's what, I sleep at 12. <laughs> and that's, that's the life of a pastor. And so I would commend it to you. Uh, I, I think it's a good one. You, know, it's, you work from 3 to 12, and, uh, and then, yeah, that's it. You know. Well, anyway. Well, let me pray, uh, and, and I'll read from Luke I think you have the, the scripture passage in front of you and your bulletins. And... But what I want to do uh, this evening is I kind of, I, I suppose, be honest with you. Um, I don't know what you expect of pastors. I know what you, what you see in Ben. Um, he's an honest man of God. And not all men of God are honest. Right? That's stated bluntly. But uh, let's give attention to God's word. From Luke 9, beginning in verse 51. When the days drew near for him, for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Let's pray. Lord, would you teach us and expose our hearts, but above all, show us the great grace that we have in Jesus. Lord, how you come to people, whether we're honest or not, and you expose us, and then you show us in your great, wonderful mercy the grace that there is in Christ for sinners like us. And so we beseech you to display Jesus before our eyes, to press him into our hearts, and to change us for his glory. Amen. Uh, many years ago, I was in my car. I was going to seminary in, my, uh, in Mississippi, and I was listening to a report from what was called Operation Rescue. Operation Rescue... I uh, was a leading pro-life Christian activist organization. And they were reporting on uh, a group that were protesting in front of a medical clinic. But what was interesting about that report is that there were other groups there as well. There was the pro-lifers that were protesting, and then there was a group that was protesting against the pro-lifers, and there was a group protesting against those who were protesting against pro-lifers, and on and on. But what caught my attention as I'm listening to this, I could hear some of what was going on, was uh, how those folk who were there and protesting the pro-lifers, how they were spewing hateful remarks, really angry rage, berating the folk that were there. I was, I was astounded. I was astounded. I said, how, how could they really say these sorts of things? But what was more astounding wasn't that. It was my reaction. Here I am in the car, and I, I, just, I just prayed. I said, God, there is just no way. There is no way that I'm going to be supportive of these people who kill babies there is just no way that I have anything good to say. God, just wipe them off the face of this planet. God, send them to hell. So here I'm going to seminary class. I'm preparing to be a preacher of the good news. God, send them to hell. 
You know, I, I said that, and I, I was all wound up. I was just like, just consign. Of course, I said it in good seminary language. Oh, God, consign them, consign them to hell, you know. Uh, and I asked myself, well, man, gosh, do I really mean that? Do I really mean that? You see, we all struggle with deep things of the heart, even, even pastors and uh, those who are studying in seminary and those who are, and after seminary I went on the mission field um, for 13 years. And, and what, what that did that afternoon as I listened to that and I heard what came out of my heart, it exposed something that was deep inside that I spent years covering up. And, uh, and there are times in our lives where God will bring us into a circumstance bring an event into our lives that will expose things. And, and I think if I could draw one idea out of this text is that when you're befriending somebody, when you are trying to show them the kindness and the love of Christ, when you want to share the good news with somebody else and they reject you, they reject your kindness what do you do with that? What do you do with that? And, and, and they just are ugly about it. Do you withdraw? That's one possibility. Do you just say, you, you know, forget it. It's just, do you become callous and cynical? Or do you respond in anger? And that's what I saw myself doing as I listened to that radio report. Responding in anger. I wanted vengeance right then. And I felt really good about it. You ever felt good about vengeance? I have many times in my life. At least for a moment. And then it's rather bitter. You know, as I look at this text, I find I'm in good company. I'm in good company because James and John do something very similar, don't they? You see... Jesus and the disciples are en route. They're from going north. They're north of uh, Jerusalem. They're going to go through this small town, a Samaritan town, en route to Jerusalem. And, uh, and the people of Samaria, the Samaritan village, they reject Jesus. They reject the disciples. And, and what's striking is the attitude and the response of James and John. See, I, I think this is here in the Bible because it's like a mirror. As I come across this, it's, it's a mirror and a magnifying glass at the same time. It says, look at yourself. Look at yourself in the life of these two disciples. Yeah, we're not talking about non-Christians. We're not talking, you know, about people on the fringe. We're talking about followers of Jesus Christ who can have this kind of hateful attitude deep in your soul. Even pastors. Oh, for pity's sake, a pastor, yeah. A pastor. Yeah. And it's scary. It is scary. But when you see it, you either despair, hide it, or you run to Jesus and say, do something because I cannot do anything with this. This is much bigger than me. I don't even know where it came from. And so, I want us to understand a little bit of this the response, the nature of this response in the lives of James and John. 
give you a little bit of historical background. So here's Jesus traveling through Samaria en route to Jerusalem. And you probably know that there was quite a bit of tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. See, the Jews viewed the Samaritans as racial half-breeds, right? They're racial, racial, uh, racial, uh, racial half-breeds. Uh, ethnically, they were not pure, right? In, in a little bit of the history, Israelites in the north, um, when the kingdom was divided, uh, they were captured by the Assyrians, and so there were another group of people, foreigners, that came and intermarried with the Jews. So you get the Samaritans. All right, so the Jews would look at them as ethnically impure, but they were, the Jews also saw the Samaritans as religiously corrupt because the Samaritans only held as authoritative the first five books of the Old Testament Bible. Right? And they also had their own temple. Not in Jerusalem. They had it in Mount Gerizim. And on top of that, later on, it was destroyed by some Jews. Right? So there was just a lot of tension. I mean, if, some years ago, if you were Mexican-American and you drove from Las Cruces or El Paso through Arizona, you would have felt some of the tension. When the sheriff there were freely stopping people. And we felt some of that. I remember when I was in high school. I mean, do I look like I'm Arab? Yes, some people. Go ahead, say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember uh, in high school, kids in the buses stopping and yelling out, go back to Iran. Go back to Iran. Racial tension, we've experienced that. And, and this is... And this is the environment in which Jesus and his disciples are going into. And so, um, you know, here's Jesus and his disciples, 12 or more people. And so they, Jesus sends some messengers ahead into this Samaritan village uh, to make arrangements. But they were not welcome. They just simply were not welcome. Ever feel not welcome someplace? Oh, yeah. Sure you have. You know, and... And they, we see in verse 53, that they, were not, they didn't welcome Jesus because he had his face set toward Jerusalem. Perhaps that was just a slam, they thought. You know, you think so little of Gerizim, you know. You don't even consider it. You're going to Jerusalem, so we don't want you here. But verse 54, And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? idiotic hotheads. <laughs> I love the scriptures because it's so honest, so brutally honest. It just tells you, you know, nothing is whitewashed. I mean, it's, it's there. These guys are just saying, look, do you want us, we'll, we'll go ahead and pray, you know, that God will just send them to hell right now. I mean, that's it. I, I, so I had that experience. I read this passage. He goes, hey, that's me. That's me. Lord, you put this in the Bible for me to expose my heart. That's crummy. <laughs> you were thinking about me for a long time before I came into this world. You knew what my heart would be like. You, were, you wrote this and had it inspired just for me. Well, that's scary. But it's so good. It's so good. Now, what prompted this unrighteous, vindictive reaction? Now, if, if, you were, if we were to read... Uh, the earlier part of what Luke writes in this chapter, 
we would have read that um, that Jesus took James, Peter, and John and went took him with him and went up to the mountain of Transfiguration. Remember that? All right. So here's Jesus, uh, with, and there appearing next to Jesus, Elijah, and who? And Moses. Moses. Yeah, Moses. <laughs> there you go, Moses. Uh, now, why is that important? Well, if you're thinking, if after these things, if they just, if they supposedly saw Elijah and Moses with Jesus, and now, and now they say, "Hey, look, let's. Do you want us to pray and have fire come down from heaven?" It might have been triggered by an account that happened with Elijah. You see, in Second Kings chapter one, there's this king Ahaziah who falls down and he hurts himself and he's sick and he's having a hard time recovering and he wants to know what's going to happen to him in the future if he's going to recover and what he does is instead of sending a messenger to inquire of God he sends his messenger to, to inquire of Baal Zebub this idol and so here's his messenger he's going to consult with Baal Zebub and on the way there he encounters Elijah and Elijah says, well, you tell the king that he's going to die, essentially. So he goes back, tells the king he's going to die. And the king says, well, who told you that? And he described the man. He said, well, that's Elijah the Tishbite. All right. So what the king does, he gathers a captain with his 50 men. And he says, go and get Elijah. And so they go, the captain goes with his 50 men. They find Elijah, who's up on a hill. He says, Elijah, man of God, come down. Elijah says, if I am a man of God, may fire come down and consume you. And sure enough, fire came down and consumed him. <laughs> you just don't want to mess with certain people. <laughs> well, king found out about it. He says, oh, captain number two, come here. And another captain, another 50 soldiers. Same thing. They find Elijah, come down from the mountain. If I'm a man of God, may fire consume you. Fire consume them. The third time. I mean, don't you see a little bit of humor in this thing? This is, this, come on. The third captain goes to this 50 man. Well, he has a little more sense. And he says, please, don't hurt me, Elijah. Spare our lives. And he does. But see, if you're James and John, and you've just seen Elijah, perhaps all that comes to your mind. And they're thinking, yes. Just like Elijah, here's some people, you know, that deserve some fire being consumed. Lord, you want us to pray and call down fire? Yes, come on. Well, that's a good ministry. <laughs> you know, I guess you don't have to worry about tithes and offerings after that. <laughs> you know, so I, I am convinced that you know, James and John felt very um, virtuous and right in what they did. They're zealous. They're committed to Jesus. You know? <laughs> and so they request the Lord's permission to smoke the Samaritans. Okay. Well, not always, but fire in the Bible is often associated with judgment. Right? Uh, and so what they were doing is they're asking for the judgment of God to fall immediately. Let me, let me put it to you in different terms. God, 
Will you burn the homes of every family in this village? God, would you burn these people alive? All of a sudden, it changes everything, doesn't it? And if you've ever have been or experienced a house fire or know of someone who has, this is an atrocious thing to wish. We have a family in our church that we met years ago because their house was burnt to the ground. It's been seven years now, and even today, if they were to retell you the story and the events of that day, they would do so with tears in their eyes, the fear, the horror of trying to escape from flames. And thankfully, none of them were hurt. They lost everything. They preserved their lives by the mercy of God. See, no, sometimes I think that no right-thinking human being would really want to see another human being burned alive. <clears throat> Yet this is what essentially I was asking and what the disciples were asking that day. Something is wrong with me. That was my conclusion. <laughs> Something is deeply wrong with me. Something is deeply wrong with the disciples of Jesus. How can this happen? How does something like this happen? Why is it in deep in my heart? And I think if we look at the disciples, we can say, well, maybe there are two reasons. And one is that there are two problems. They misunderstood Jesus' mission. So there's a theological problem. There's also a personal problem. First, a theological problem. In verse 51, this is when the days drew near for him, for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. What was he doing? Yeah, everything in Jesus' life was determined by the Father. And that time that got, had been determined by his Father in heaven, that time for him to go to Jerusalem, that time for him had come. So he sets out to go to the center of Israel's life and worship and where the temple was. And he knew that he would be taken up to glory. But first, what must he do? He must be lifted up on the cross. First, he had to be despised. First, he had to be hated. First, he had to be ridiculed. First, he had to be rejected. Yeah. Then he would lay his life down as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He had told his disciples about that many times. Even in the same chapter, verse 22, says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So here's Jesus. You know, think of this, you know, imagine it in your mind's eye that he is resolutely set on going to Jerusalem. He is determined. His eyes, you know, his heart, you know, he is fixed on going to Jerusalem to walk into suffering intentionally to intentionally walk into suffering that was his mission to intentionally walk into a situation in which he would be beaten and viciously whipped and then nailed to a cross but why would he do that because he had to be rejected so that we who come to trust in him would not be rejected that's the way it worked in the kingdom of God. That was the gospel. Jesus had not come to condemn the world. The world was already under condemnation. He had come to save a people for 
the Father. And he would do it through suffering. He would do it through, through rejection. And that's so hard because everything inside of me hates rejection. I hate suffering. Why would Jesus do that intentionally? But he does. Because that's the only way that we might know life. And see, if, if we don't see that Jesus came to suffer, be rejected, and die. If I don't see that his suffering and rejection leads to glory and leads to salvation, I won't know what to do with those moments when I am rejected. You just don't know what to do with it. At least you won't do anything that's good. You'll do what I did. You see, it's the gospel in which we see so many things. There's so many facets. I think the disciples, you know, they could say, yes, Jesus is the king. He's the Messiah. They were thinking, perhaps we're going to go into Jerusalem. It's going to be a triumphal entry, right? We're going to see him crowned king of kings, right? That's true. He's a sovereign ruler. But it's also true that he would do this through suffering and rejection. And that's the part of the gospel that i got to get into my soul and understand more and more. And that's what compels me. If that is true, and that gets into my thinking, into my living, if that's what I eat and what I drink, then that compels me to react and respond differently. Because I see, oh, my Savior, my Savior intentionally did this. He didn't shy away from the rejection and suffering. He didn't react in anger. Oh Lord, teach me. Teach me. I think the Apostle Paul in Philippians says it this way. He says, we are to share in the sufferings and the fellowship of his sufferings. To share in the fellowship of his suffering. Now that's a really attractive Christian appeal in him. Come on down. Let's share in the sufferings of Jesus. There is a lady in church. She's married. Um, had a horrible marriage. Abusive. Uh, married an abusive husband. Emotionally abusive, verbally abusive, physically abusive. For years. It got so bad that um, the police came, took him away, and eventually he was arrested and he spent time in jail. They divorced. The years went by, 15, 20 years. And... She found out, she hadn't seen him in a number of years, and she found out that he was dying. He was in an assisted living facility, and he was dying. She said to me, I'm going to go and visit him. I said, okay. So she did. She went and brought her Bible. He's a man who, who continued to spew out hatred toward her. She would read the Bible and just put that away. I don't need that. Let me pray for you. You don't need to pray for me. And she would... Pray for him nonetheless. He would continue to insult her. He's, not, he's virtually, you know, he just had months to live and he would continue to insult her. No interest in repenting, no interest in expressing sorrow. Never saw one single thing that he ever did wrong in his life. And she kept on going back. And what was striking about that is after her visit, she would call me and she would just sob. I can't take it. And I would say, don't take it, don't go. 
<laughs> Everything is happening. I'm on the, on the phone listening to her, and I'm crying. I said, don't go. Don't go. That's what I'm saying inside. But inside, I knew she understood something about the gospel and sharing in the fellowship of Jesus' suffering for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of making Christ known, she was willing to suffer that rejection. I said, man, she just showed me an aspect of the gospel that I have such a hard time grasping. And it's hard, isn't it? It's hard. So, there's a theological problem when you don't understand the mission of Jesus, and then we don't know what to do with the rejection, the suffering. But there's a personal problem. As I said earlier, I don't think James and John thought the reaction was sinful. Not at all. They're rather righteous and virtuous, full of zeal and faith. I mean, you don't, you don't pray and, and say, hey, can I call fire down from heaven and, and not have faith? You've got to have some kind of faith to do that. But when they asked to, uh, to see judgment on the Samaritans, their request not only betrayed anger and harshness, but it, requ- it really betrayed something much more lethal, and that's self-righteousness. That it's that sense, I'm, I'm better than you, and you, I've received grace, and you, I want hell for you. Oh, that's, that's so twisted, brothers and sisters. It's so twisted. Say, yes, God, give me grace, but let me give judgment to another. And why would I say that? It's simply because self-righteousness blinds me to my own sin, what I deserve. I deserve judgment. Because my offense against God is much more grievous than others' offense. So what's our hope? What do we do? I think our hope is bound up in seeing ourselves rightly in the first place. And... uh, when I was in college, I studied social work. A very noble thing to study. Not very good if you want to provide for a family. But it's very noble. <laughs> so I had two jobs in social work, during the day and during the night, <laughs> to make ends meet. And, um, but one of the things about social work is that you get drilled into your head. You know, this is on the, on the East Coast. And so... That, hey, you're, you're the good guy. You're, you're the one that's going to go out and fix all these people that are all deranged and in bad shape, right? And so you get that drilled in your head. And, and so you go to people and say, hey, look, I have something good. Here's something in your family situation, in your living circumstance, you know, that is not very good. I'm offering you something better. And they say, no, I don't really want it. I say, what's wrong with you? You stupid. I'm giving you something good. <laughs> you know? This is much better than what you presently have. Why would you deny? Why would you say no? Why would you? you know, and I would get so bent out of shape. Why? Simply because I had this notion that, as a social worker, I was the one that was going to fix their lives. I was going to fix it. I was the one who was going to save them. I didn't understand it then, but I had become functionally their savior. And when you think of yourself as a savior for somebody else, and they reject you, it hurts. So I had to get it straight. Gospel lesson number one. I am not the Savior. (laughs) I am one, a sinner who points other people to the Savior. There's only one Savior, and that's Jesus. That's a a, a lesson that has stuck with me. And people come to church and they say, well, this is happening, this is happening. They say, good, Jesus will fix it. 
<laughs> not me. <laughs> not me. And the other thing we need to see rightly is, um, is judgment. Vengeance. It, it's striking, is it not, in this passage that Jesus doesn't rebuke the Samaritans? Who does he rebuke? He rebukes James and John, the disciples. He rebukes them. I love it. That's, that's great. Not because they fail to understand that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Judgment's going to come. Judgment's going to come. But we're not the ones to assign that, nor administer that. As a matter of fact, what our calling is, in, in chapter 12 of Luke, verses 49-50, Jesus says this, it's very interesting, he says, I, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. What he's saying is that, is that the fire of God's judgment... The fire of God's rejection. He's going to be baptized into that rejection. You know, at the cross. So there's a judgment that's coming. And you see it at the cross of Calvary. Where God judges the Son. The Son is abandoned. The Son cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now that's rejection of cosmic proportions. And why did he go through that? So that I wouldn't have to. So that you who trust in him would not have to. Now that's the judgment we point to. There you go. You want to talk about a judgment? Look at the judgment at the cross. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. See, and so I need the, the gospel pressed into my soul more. It's only then... It's only then, and I think as Ben has said, I have not arrived, not here physically nor spiritually. It's only then that I will be able to respond with any degree of hope to the command of Jesus, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. <laughs> love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You've got to be kidding, Jesus. No, I'm not. Do, do you know what that does to me? I hope it does to you. It drives you to beg the Lord to work in your heart. Or from Romans 12, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. There's a passage in 2 Timothy chapter 2. It talks about the Lord's servant, appropriate for me, right, for all of us. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Ouch. <laughs> patiently enduring evil. Correcting his opponents with gentleness, not with God consigned them to hell. Look, I suspect you're probably no different than I am. And you've been rejected. You have pushed back. You have reacted angrily. And you've lost something, haven't you? Why, has it, why have you and I reacted with anger? Because we've lost something. We've lost respect. We've lost, you know, this <coughs> sense of dignity. This sense of worth and significance. But the gospel says, everything that you've lost, you have in Jesus. You want respect and dignity and acceptance and welcome. You have it in Jesus.
we had neighbors, um, they're no longer living in front of us, but they used to. There were uh, a guys, three guys in the mid-twenties. They loved to party. And uh, I went after they first arrived and they had the first party, so I went over and introduced myself and I said, hey man, glad you guys are here, but um, you know, we have some families you know, with kids, so um, if you could, you know, after midnight, if you could just kind of tone it down a little bit, that's all I'm asking, just tone it down. Well, the, the subsequent weekend came along and it just got louder. And the weekend after that got louder and louder and louder and louder. So, you know, went back again and talked to the guy, I'm trying to be a Christian, you know. <laughs> Instead of consigning them to hell right away, <laughs> I, I'm a slow learner, but I'm getting there. And, uh, and he just got really bad one night. I, and I, I just, you know, my neighbors were awake. Everybody's awake because it's two in the morning. And we were out in the street. And what do we do? So we called the police. And um, the police came. And uh, apparently they had a lot of guests that um, had warrants for the rest. And so they took about three or four of their guests out in police cars. <laughs> So, can you imagine this? At 4 o'clock in the morning, all right, uh, this guy is standing, because all his guests are gone, the party is over, and uh, he is standing on, in front of his porch, and he is yelling at the top of his lungs, and consigning me to hell in a lot of other places, because he just imagines, he thinks it's me, and he's right. <laughs> and, and he is threatening to kill me and threatening to kill my neighbor I, he was just going to town of course at this time all my neighbors are awake and all of us have heard this well needless to say the next day I am with a baseball bat next to my bed and with a gun I'm just like this guy's going to come after us and I'm just I just stay away from him alright stay away from him you know what my wife does can't believe she did this. <laughs> she made some cookies and brought it to them. I said, what's wrong with you? <laughs> what's wrong with you? Says, yeah. How do you overcome evil with good, dear pastor, husband of mine? <laughs> you, you see, what a lesson. What a lesson of grace, the gospel getting pressed into the heart of a sinner. I will always be a sinner until the day I am with Jesus. But I'm learning my lessons. And to learn to be able to respond uh, with gentleness, with grace, when you're rejected. When you get it, it hurts still. But it's good. Amen? Lord, thank you. Thank you for your grace that comes to sinners like us. Thank you for transforming us. Thank you for the hope that we have, that we will be conformed to the image of Jesus. It's a work that you are doing, and it will be accomplished for your glory.